mind, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. We are going to be in the Lord's Prayer this morning. Um, I read this week, somebody wrote about this passage. We call it the Lord's Prayer, but the Lord's Prayer is John 17. We should call this the Disciples' Prayer. This indeed is our prayer. So let's read together and then let's get into it. Um, Starting in verse 7. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Okay, so prayer uh, is reflective. Prayer reflects. This, uh, this passage, and when I say this passage, I mean Matthew chapter 6 in its entirety, seems to orbit around prayer. Seems to orbit around the topic of prayer. And we've seen a pattern emerge almost from day one which is how you pray reflects what you believe about God. So how you pray to God reflects what you believe about God. I'll give you two examples. They're actually from the text. If you pray often in public, but rarely in secret, you believe some things about God. Um, You might believe that God doesn't really hear you, or even if He hears you, He doesn't care. You might believe that even if He cares... You don't really need His help, not not chiefly, because the respect of people is really what you're going for. All All those decisions, all those convictions are betrayed in a public prayer life that has no private counterpart. And again, if you mindlessly repeat empty words... You believe that in some way God is distant, or that God is a fool, or that He's easily manipulated, or that He's easily distracted, like the Gentiles believe about their gods. So what you pray, how you pray, matters because it reflects what you believe about God. But there's more, I think, and And we're going to see this in our passage. There's another pattern. And if you take it seriously, this pattern can radically shift how you live and what you believe. That pattern is that what you pray, what you pray for reflects what you believe about you. What you pray reflects what you believe about you. About you. Now, how you pray reflects what you believe about God, and what you pray reflects 
what you believe about you. Our prayers, the things we ask God for, reflect what we think we need the most. What we ask God for reflects what we think we need. And that, I think, is an understatement. Actually, I think what we pray for reflects what we believe we need at our most fundamental levels. And what you believe you need at the most fundamental levels has global implications for how you live. Okay? All right. So I want to tell you what I think is the point of this passage by reading a line from a commentary that I think misses the point altogether. All right, we're going to start there. Um, let me give you some context. When we first spoke about this prayer, I mentioned that it's divided into two halves. You can, you can see it clearly enough at first glance. First half, your name, your kingdom, your will. The second half, my needs, my debts, My temptations, the first half of this prayer seems to focus exclusively on God, on His glory, His kingdom, His will. And the second half of this prayer seems to focus exclusively on us, our frailty, our foolishness, our desperation. And I think the trick of understanding this prayer is to see the relationship between the two. Now, I want to read a single line from one of my favorite commentaries. Just let me go ahead and and say at the front end, I don't think that this implication was intended. I think it was accidental. I will still continue to read this commentary because it's excellent. But I, I want to read a line from one of my favorite commentaries, one of the most celebrated commentaries on Matthew, because I think that that line misses the mark. All right, I'm going to read you the line. I want you to put on your listening ears. Okay? Here's the the line. The prayer seeks first God's glory, not the petitioner's own needs. All right, let me repeat it. The prayer seeks first God's glory, not the petitioner's own needs. Needs. Okay, okay. First, God's glory, not the petitioner's own needs. There it is. In a single word, a profound mistake that misses the point of this passage and this prayer and this book and I think the whole Bible entirely. Because the glory of God is is our most profound need. The glory of God is our most profound need. Every other desire we foster, every other need we feel, no matter how acutely, is less fundamental than that, is less central than that, and is less significant than God's glory. The first half of this prayer is not mere decorum. It is not a civil nod. It is not the ceremonial trappings that precede the event. The first half of this prayer is the event. 
See, the problem is when you see God's glory, and let me define that really quick. What I mean when I say God's glory is the global celebration of His character and holiness at the dawn of Christ's kingdom, the restoration of His majestic reign, and the submission of all creation to His will. That's my definition. I'm stealing it from a number of people. If you want credits, go ahead and ask me afterwards. I'll send you to a handful of places. But what I mean when I, when I, when I say God's glory is this future vision of Christ's kingdom, the global celebration of who He is, His character and His holiness and His might at the dawn of Christ's kingdom, the restoration of God's majestic reign and the submission of all creation to His will. God's glory! Right? That's the first half of this prayer. God's glory. And the problem is when you see that Glory as something other than, as something apart from your needs. That's the mistake. And though I suspect it was an unfortunate accidental implication in this one sentence, in this writer's case, I'm afraid that that misstep highlights a fundamental crack in our faith and our practice and our prayers. I think we, in our day-to-day see some false dichotomy between God's glory covering the earth and our needs when we're hungry. And when we have debts that need forgiven and we, when we have temptation looming. And by the way of that misstep, we arrive at the point of this passage. I think the point of this passage is that God's glory is your most fundamental need. God's glory as represented in the first half of this prayer, is your, you, individually, your most fundamental need. More than anything you've ever longed for, you stand in desperate need of God's glory. I think the structure of this prayer is a lesson in priorities. God's name honored, and God's kingdom come, and God's will done. In other words, God's earth-flooding glory is the sun around which all of our lesser needs orbit. I like that word picture. The sun around which our lesser needs orbit. And the reason I like it so much is that to address in prayer our our hunger or our debts or our temptations outside of the framework of God's comprehensive reign is a meaningless exercise. Meaningless. That's why this prayer begins with a plea for God to be seen as He is and for His righteous reign to come and for His will to be done because His glory is the beating heart of our hope. Okay, that's, that's the point, I think. And I'm getting ahead of myself. I want to read the passage one more time and let's just break it down. Turn again to Matthew 6, 7. Let's read together. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. All right. I want to start with the preface. Now, we spent a lot of time uh, last time thinking about the preface to this prayer. I don't want to devote too much time here. Suffice it to say that God is not deaf and dumb like the Greek gods, right? The pagan prayers were long and repetitive, and they were punctuated by repeating the names of the gods because those gods are way up there and they don't care a lick about me and, and they're distracted with their feasts and their revelry. So I just need to continue to, to uh, say the same things over and over again until somebody happens to pay attention, right? That is not who our God is and that is not what our God is like. He is not deaf and dumb. His attention is not won by many mantras, God rather is your Father. Boy, there are a few sweeter words. He knows you, He loves you, and He cares about you. So much so that He knows what you need before you ask Him. That's that's the point of the preface. That's there on purpose. That's there on purpose. Jesus begins instructing His disciples how to pray with that, I think, on purpose because... The love of our Father, secured by Christ, is the cornerstone of this plea for His name and His kingdom and His will. Here's what I mean. If you stood as an enemy of God, right? And don't get me wrong, if you are not in Christ, if you are not right now a disciple of Christ, if you have not trusted Christ for your redemption and have been secured by His sacrifice, by His blood, then and I'm talking about you right now. If, if you stood as an enemy of God, His reign and His will would be your nightmare. That is not something you would want to happen. But, if you are Christ's disciple, then you stand reconciled to God. All of the love of the Father for the Son who stood as your representative is poured out on you. Okay? And because you stand reconciled to God, because you stand in His favor, His honor and His reign and His will is your good. Right? If God is no longer your enemy, but your great ally then you want His reign and you want His will and you want everybody to see who He is and what He's like. That is your good. So our reconciliation to God, our adoption in Christ is so central to our faith that every prayer should start there and end there. We finish our prayers with in Christ, or we pray all these things in Christ's name, not as like, we need a way to end, like sincerely, or something. No, we do it because the only avenue by which we can confidently approach God is Jesus. Right? Now that's why this prayer starts here. Okay. All right, so let's get into the actual prayer itself. Jesus begins to teach us by beginning 
with our Father in heaven. We are to begin our prayers addressing our Father in heaven. Our Father. I love the way Jesus uses these words. It's amazing. There is a theology of redemption that you can derive exclusively from the way Jesus uses the words Father, or my Father, or your Father, or our Father. Here's what I mean. Do you know that when Jesus reflects on our need for forgiveness, He says, your Father? When He reflects on our need for forgiveness, He says, your Father. Because Christ has no sin. And when He's teaching His disciples about His own unique, eternal relationship with the Father, He says, my Father. Because we are creatures and we are adopted into sonship. And here's, I think this is my favorite. After He's crucified and raised again, He comforts His disciples by assuring them that He goes to my Father and your Father. Right? You see what happened there? He's foreshadowing this when He's teaching His disciples to pray to our Father. But after the job is done and the victory is secure, He says, I'm going to my Father and your Father. Amen. So we're told then to pray to our Father in heaven. An interesting modifier, in heaven. This is not merely so that we don't forget that we're not addressing our Father on earth. I think that'd be silly. So why is that here? In heaven. Our Father in heaven. I think it's here because this is not only a reflection on God's love, but I think it's the first in a series of reflections on His distance. Not in a negative sense, by the way. Jesus has comforted us with a promise that the Father is not far from us consistently. He's with us in the secret closet as we pray. He's near to His people. He sees our secret righteousness, our secret little our righteousness when we're doing the good work and nobody can see. He's right there and He sees us. But in some sense, this is a reflection of God's impermanent distance. His impermanent distance. You'll see what I mean if you keep reading. May your name be hallowed. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. Where? Where? Here. Like it is there. Here like it is there. The renown of God's name in heaven, the the direct and glorious reign of God in heaven, the kingdom of God in heaven is the hope we long for to come here. Right? So just at this first greeting, we are remembering that once God walked among His people and He will do so again. Our Father will do so again. The implication then is that His name isn't honored here, at least not in the same way. His kingdom hasn't yet come here, at least not in the same way. His will isn't yet done here, at least not like it's done in heaven. So even as we cry out to our Father, 
our cries are anchored in our longing that He would dwell once again with His people. Right? That prayer, our Father in heaven, if you stopped there, it wouldn't be so bad of a prayer. But we don't stop there. He says, hallowed be your name. Now this trips me up. I don't use the word hallowed. I think I have used the word hallowed in one season of my life. Adrian, correct me if I'm wrong, but hallowed was in Hardin Simmons' song, right? Hallowed be your halls. I think that's the only time I've ever used that, our school song, used that, uh, that word. What does hallowed mean? What does it mean to hallow something? And why, why his name? Uh, hallowed. Okay, let's talk about hallowed. Hallow is a verbal form of holy. And holy means something like set apart. When we call something holy, we mean it's other than in a significant sense, often in a moral sense, like righteousness, or in a spiritual sense. Right? Other than, in a, in a significant moral, spiritual sense. So to hollow something then means to honor it in that sense, a holiness. This word appears in 1 Peter 3.15, but it's translated differently. Let me read it to you. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. You mean, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Same word. Hallow Christ. To hollow someone or something is to recognize how holy that thing is and to treat it so. Right? So, so hollow makes enough sense. Why, why God's name? Why not just God? God's name. When the Scriptures and not just the Scriptures, but in many ancient contexts, a name meant something. It was bound up with a person's character and his works and his legacy. To honor someone's name was to honor all they are and all they've done and all they're about. It's a reflection on their authority and their power and their significance. So to honor God's name is to see Him as He is. To see God as He is and to celebrate Him as He is. And so when, when we pray, hallowed be Your name, what we want to happen is for the world to see who God is in all that He's done and in His character and His might and in His purpose and to celebrate it Right? This is a vision of a world full of praise. And that is our hope. And then he says, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Now this plea proceeds logically from the last one. If God is all that He is, if He is all that He is, if He's righteous and good, if He's kind, and compassionate, if He's powerful and loving, then His kingdom is something to long for. Imagine such a king. Imagine such a king as this. 
Now, there's some nuance here because from the outset of Jesus' ministry, we've heard that the kingdom is here. It's here in some sense. The kingdom is among us in some sense. And there's this dynamic that's all through Matthew and all through the Scriptures, already not yet, already not yet. The kingdom is already here, but it's not yet here. We are saved already, but we're not yet saved. So since Jesus' birth, we've had glimpses of the coming kingdom. It's already among us in His miraculous work, in His rescue of people, when He changes hearts and miraculously provides. Those Those are foreshadows of the coming kingdom. To use an analogy from one of John Piper's famous sermons at Passion, I think, he called the world an iceberg. He said, like, there's torches. And these torches start to melt the ice. And then all of a sudden they shine, little beacons. And those beacons are a, a, a foreshadow of the glory of God that will fall on the earth. Right? We have those foreshadows, but the, the kingdom isn't here yet. And we still long for the day when our king reigns and when the glory of God covers the earth and when the curse of sin is finally and fully undone. Here, I think, even more explicitly than before, even though it's there before, our pleas follow an ancient melody. In the distance behind our prayer is creation before the fall, when God walks among His people. We long for the darkness of the fall to be undone. It's been our longing from the beginning. We long for God's nearness to walk among us in the cool breeze of the afternoon. It's our longing. We long for God's glory and God's kingdom, the new birth, the new creation, the return to spotlessness. It's an ancient yearning and it is crystallized in this prayer because it is the seed of our hope. The new creation. What's interesting about this kingdom come request is I think that of all the the requests in the Lord's prayer, this is the one that's most visible in the New Testament. Come, Lord Jesus. Marantha? 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 I hear you guys say it. I didn't come from that kind of background that said it, but... Marantha? Maran- Maranatha? Mar- wasn't there a, uh, like a charismatic worship label called Marantha? Maranatha? It's the same word? I've just been misreading it my whole life. Fair enough. Fair enough. Come, Lord Jesus. It's how the Bible ends. Come, Lord Jesus. You shouldn't feel guilty about praying that prayer. It is okay to simultaneously long for the redemption of your friends who are not in Christ and plead with the Lord to come back as soon as possible. Come, Lord Jesus. His kingdom is our hope. His kingdom is our hope. 
Okay. Finally, your will be done. Your will be done. Why long for God's reign? Why long for God's reign? Why is God's kingdom such good news for God's people? It's because when His kingdom is on earth, His will will be done on earth. His will will be done on earth. And the implication there is that on earth, God's will isn't done in the same way that it's done in heaven. Now, if there isn't a place in your understanding of God's sovereignty for that dynamic, I encourage you to make room for one. God reigns sovereign over creation. His purposes can't be thwarted. Job 42, he does according to his will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Daniel 4, our God is in the heavens and he does what pleases him. Psalm 115, God is sovereign. And yet God's will isn't done on earth in the same way that it's done on heaven. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That's Ezekiel 18. And yet the wicked die. You may or may not read these verses this way, but if you do, read 1 Timothy 2 as God's desire for all to come to the knowledge of the truth, and all of a sudden you're in this pickle. God doesn't wish anybody to perish. If you read that in broad terms, 1 Peter 3, you're in a pickle. Well, how? How? Can he want something or not want something? And it happened if God is sovereign. Many things that God hates, he permits. Many things that God hates, he permits. He is sovereign notoriously over the hardened heart of Pharaoh, the crucifixion of his son, and someday the war which will be waged against the returning Christ. God is explicitly sovereign over those decisions which He simultaneously hates. So how can God have His will in one sense, but not in another? That's a, that's a question. It's a question about which many volumes have been written. I want to read you a few of my favorite answers from men's minds more capable than mine. I'm just going to call them the Johns. The Johns, John Frame, Jonathan Edwards, Jonathan Piper. These are three ways to say, I think, the same thing. John Frame says, God's will is sometimes thwarted because He wills it to be. Because He has given one of His desires precedence over another. God does not intend to bring about everything He values, but He never fails to bring about what He intends. Okay? God does not intend to bring about everything He values, but He never fails to bring about what He intends. I need you another take. It's okay if you need me to read this again or write it down and, get, and send it to you because Jonathan Edwards is just really difficult to understand. 
God, though he hates a thing as it is simply, may incline to it with reference to the universality of things. Though he hates sin in itself, yet he may will to permit it for the greater promotion of holiness in this universality, including all things and at all times. That's Jonathan Edwards. Let me read you a simpler version. This is John Piper. God wills not to save all, even though he's willing to save all, because there is something else that he wills more, which would be lost if he exerted his sovereign power to save all. This is not, by the way, a position unique to Calvinists. He says, this is a solution that I have as a Calvinist affirm, along with Arminians. In other words, both Calvinists and Arminians affirm two wills in God when they ponder deeply over 1 Timothy 2.4. Both can say that God wills for all to be saved, but then when queried as to why all are not saved, both Calvinists and Arminian answer that God is committed to something even more valuable than saving all. In other words, God's ultimate purposes will not be thwarted. We live in the world between the fall and the kingdom. And God's purposes here on earth involves permitting for a time the darkness to be and do what the darkness is and does. God's purposes here on earth involve permitting for a time the darkness to be and do what the darkness is and does. And this plea in this prayer is an expression of longing for that period to end. For God's chief purpose in the redemption of His people and the renewal of all things and the forever display of His praise and His majesty. For these ultimate purposes to finally come to fruition in the kingdom of Jesus. That's the core, it's the heart of this prayer. Three different ways to say the same thing. Three different ways to say the same thing. May your name be hallowed. May your kingdom come. May your will be done is to say, come Lord Jesus. Your kingdom is my only hope. Your glory is my only hope. The cornerstone of Christian hope embodied in this prayer is that God's glory would cover the earth. Cover the earth. Because the glory of God is our greatest good. His name being hallowed. We who were created to see Him and to know Him and to walk with Him and to praise Him. That's why we were created. We were created to do this and we long for His fullest revelation. Because when He is majestically displaying who He is, we will be richly joyful forever. His kingdom come, every glimpse of His character and power and work that we see through a lens darkly taught us to hope in His future reign where there is no darkness. Amen? And finally, His will be done. We long for the day when the righteous decree of our earthly King is also the cherished will of our beloved Father. And the 
the reason these are here, the reason this precedes our daily bread, my debts, our debts, our temptations, is because all of our debt forgiveness, all of our making it another day because we can eat some bread, right? All of our, all of our freedom from temptation is just so that we can get one step closer to the coming kingdom of Jesus. The glory of God is the cornerstone of this prayer. And I think it's because the glory of God should be the cornerstone of all of your prayers. I didn't write an application to this sermon because the application is in the text. Pray then this way. And if you can't muster it, because you don't have a vision for God's glory, because you don't have a vision for God's kingdom, because you can't see what's good and virtuous about God's will, then pray for eyes to be open, for ears to hear, for a heart that understands who He is and what He's like, and your prayers will start to look like this. Amen? Amen. We're going to sing, and then we're going to take the supper. And I... Ask that the Lord would bless our hearing and our praying.